Good morning. This is the men's Bible study at Covenant Presbyterian Church for Wednesday, April the 15th. We are studying the letter to the Hebrews, what I have sometimes been referring to as the sermon to the Hebrews. We have completed chapter 11, and after a little bit of review, we're going to get started into Hebrews chapter 12. So men, let's begin. And those ladies who may be joining us together with their men doing the home Bible study, we welcome you as well. Glad that you are with us and members of Covenant Presbyterian Church in general. So welcome to everyone, even those of you who have not been a part of the men's Bible study through this uh, academic year, but we're glad to have you with us today. Let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your faithfulness, your loving kindness to us, your rich mercy. We thank you, Father, for your covenant faithfulness, faithfulness to your own word, faithfulness to your promises, faithfulness to do all which you have said that you would do and you have done. In Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of all your promises to your people, and in whom, O oh Lord, uh, we have a great high priest who offered himself up for us as the atoning, substitutionary sacrifice for our sins, and having purged us of our sins, is now seated at your right hand. And so in his name, we pray for the blessing of your Holy Spirit upon us, that your spirit would flow forth from him, through him, upon us, and grant us grace, O Lord, now to read and to hear your word written in scripture and to believe what you say for the preserving of our souls unto life everlasting. And to you, Lord Jesus Christ, Together with the Father and the Holy Spirit, be all honor, glory, dominion, power, forever and ever. Amen. All right, well, over the past few weeks when we've been looking at <clears throat> Hebrews 11, just by way of review, I've said over and over that when the Bible speaks of faith, or in Hebrews 11, when it says over and over again, by faith, by faith, by faith. Uh, true biblical Christian faith, number one, is, is not simply the power of positive thinking, something that resides within us and is ginned up within us. I think I can, I think I can, so said the little red engine. No, that's not true biblical faith. Faith is not faith in ourselves. It's not faith in faith itself. It's not an optimistic outlook uh, supported by human willpower, uh, etc. And nor is it a matter of magic, where if we just believe hard enough, believe enough, believe what we don't really believe by way of this magic, then uh, the reality comes forth. No, it's not it. Nor, therefore, is it a matter of manipulating the deity. Absolutely not. Um, 
It's not by the exertion of our will through a faith which thereby supposedly would put God in our debt and make Him do what we want Him to do. Absolutely not. Faith is none of those things. Um, it's not positive thinking. It's not magic, and it's not manipulation of the deity. Faith is quite simply believing God. Faith is believing God. Believing what God says. Believing in the promises of God. And believing that God is able to do all that He has promised and that in fact He, he will do all that He has promised. Faith is believing God. That goes back to, now we're into the review, and it's really important, and I, <clears throat> I want to go back through this again, and I hope you'll take notes. It goes back to the uh, fundamental or seminal, the very, the very beginning point of, of what becomes, uh, what is developed as the doctrine of justification by faith, that is justification by faith in the promise of God, or justification by faith in Jesus Christ, who is the promise of God fulfilled for us. Jesus is the Word of God in human flesh and blood. All right, so if we go back to Genesis 15, 6, with regard to God's promise to Abram, Abram to make of him a great nation through whom all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And in, that first comes to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, but it is reiterated in Genesis 15 in which the Lord takes Abram outside his tent and says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then the Lord said to him, so shall your offspring be, Genesis 15, 6. And he, Abram, believed the Lord. There it is. He didn't believe something about God. He believed the Lord. He believed God. He believed what He said. Abram believed the Lord. And the Lord counted it, that is, counted Abram's faith in the Lord, faith in the Lord's Word, faith in the Lord's promise, that it refers to the fact of Abraham's believing the Lord. The Lord said it, and he believed it. And the Lord counted it, that faith, that faith which believes the word of the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. The word righteousness, in Hebrew, directly related to the word uh, justified or justification. Those two words in Hebrew are very, very semantically connected together. They, they sound like the same word. They have the same kind of root word. Doesn't come across in English. But to be righteous, to be declared righteous, to be counted righteous is to be declared justified. 
to be counted as justified, to have a justification, to have a righteousness imputed to you, given to you, credited to you. And so this is really the beginning point in Scripture of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And it is by, that is, faith in God's Word, which of course then becomes clear, completely fully revealed in the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ. And I'll show you that to you as, again by way of review. When you go to the letter to the Romans, Paul's great treatise on justification by faith or justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. When you get to Romans chapter 4, I hope that you will turn there, you have the reference to Genesis 15, 6. Paul looks, Paul in his argument about the fact that both Jew and Gentile are justified, made right with God, have a righteous standing with God, are justified before the bar of God's justice through faith alone and not by works, he goes back to Genesis 15, 6. Our father Abraham. What is this? Uh, uh, Romans 4, 4. Romans 4, 4, direct reference to Genesis 15, 6. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. There it is. Abraham believed God. He didn't believe something about God. He believed God. He believed what God said. And it was counted to him as righteousness. It was counted to him. It was credited to him. The illogical word is imputed unto him. It was given unto him as righteousness. That was the basis. That was the ground of his right standing with God. Simply the fact that he believed what God said. That was the basis. That was the ground. That was the foundation of his right standing with God. He believed what God said. But Paul develops it. Watch it. So from 4.4 or 4.3, then you go to 4.9. In which it is repeated that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness, not by works. Abraham was not declared righteous because of his observance and application of the sacrament, the Old Testament sacrament of circumcision. That's not what justified him. It wasn't his obedience that justified him. It was the fact that he believed God. That's what justified him. That was the ground of his righteousness. All right? And then it goes on from 4.9. You've got to go to 4.20. In which it says, No unbelief made Abraham wander, a waver, excuse me. No unbelief made him waver, concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith, faith in the Word of God, faith in the promise of God, as he gave glory to God, fully convinced. You hear that word? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's where we started in Hebrews 11.1. And we, we have an echo of that right here in Romans, or, or probably a precursor to that. Romans being written most, 
before Hebrews was written, but you get the point. This is um, no unbelief in God's word made him waver concerning the promise of God. There's your connection between really faith in the promise of God. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. The conviction of things not seen. God's promise to Abraham was an invisible promise. And in fact, as we, as we have commented and as the author to the Hebrews tells us, Abraham didn't see the promise fulfilled in his own life. As we've said before, the only piece of property in Canaan that Abraham owned when he died was his tomb and Sarah's tomb. Right? He didn't get what was promised in this life. All right. Now, but we're going to keep going. And I want to show you this connection, what Paul is making here. And I'm not off subject from Hebrews 11. Because this is all about defining the word faith in Hebrews 11. It all has to do with faith in the Word of God, faith in the promise of God, faith in God, faith in God who is able to do what He promises, right? But what, what's the ultimate goal of that? What was the ultimate point of God's promise to Abraham? What was the ultimate point of God's promise to Abraham? The ultimate point of God's promise to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in you. The point of that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham. Jesus Christ, Jesus, in his human nature, is the covenant son of Abraham. The one through whom all nations are blessed. God so loved the world. That goes back to Genesis 12. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That goes back to Genesis 12. The promise to Abraham is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of everyone who believes in Him, Jew or Gentile. And therefore, in Romans chapter 4, listen to this. Get that run and start from verse 20. Get ready. Get your nose in the book. Finger down on the line. Verse 20. No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced, the conviction of things not seen, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith quote, was counted to him as righteousness, but, here it comes, but, here it comes, the words, Genesis 15, 6, it was counted to him, were, say it out loud, not written for his sake alone, but loudly, for ours also, it will be, Counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. There it is. 
There is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. That is what Abraham ultimately believed from afar 1,700 years before Jesus was born as seeing through a glass darkly. That, that was the ultimate, the ultimate substance of Abraham's faith by which he was justified. That's the point I want to make. And therefore, Old Testament believers, Old Testament saints, and New Testament believers are justified the same way, saved the same way, by believing the promise of God which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Believing in Jesus. Believing God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, I just wanted to, to show you the, the connection from Genesis 15, 6 through Romans 4. Of course, that continues into Romans 5, but it's picked up. It's really picked up in Hebrews 11 and 12. So if you fast forward from Abraham, 1,700 years prior to the birth of Jesus, now to the first century, just before the destruction of Jerusalem, the, the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple in AD 70, you see, you've got these Jewish, Hebrew, Christians. And the author to the Hebrews, the preacher to the Hebrew Christian community, is telling them, you are included with this great hall of faith through the Old Testament. They were the true Israel of the Old Testament. You are the true Israel of the New Testament because together, Old Testament, true believers, New Testament, New Covenant, true believers, your faith is centered in Jesus Christ who is the full revelation of the promise of God. All right. And so he wants them to see that they are part of this great company of believers through the ages. Because in their first century context, these Hebrew Christians, you see, they have been, they've been cast out. They've been cast out from the Jewish community. They've been uh, cast out of the temple and the synagogues. They've been socially ostracized, socially marginalized. They've been disowned by their families. And so they think, well, we're not really a part of the people of God anymore. And the author to the Hebrews, the preacher to the Hebrew Christian congregation, and the Holy Spirit speaking to us in the Scripture today, is saying, no, 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 no. You... You socially ostracized, socially marginalized, those who have been cut off and cast out from the establishment community. Oh no. You are members of this great company of faith that preceded you and lived by faith 
and died in faith, which are reviewed in Hebrews 11. And so then therefore we get into Hebrews 12. Therefore, (laughs) there's the word, therefore. Because all of these in Hebrews 11, uh, they, as, as it says right at the end of 11, verse 39, though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised in this life, in this world. They didn't receive it. They didn't see it. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should be made perfect. So he's saying, no, 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 no. You see, they didn't receive all of the the fulfillment of God's promises. God's working His way through history. Now the time has come. Now Jesus has been revealed. Now Jesus has lived and died and risen from the dead and has ascended into heaven. The great high priest at the right hand of the majesty on high. Oh, and now He's made a new and living and better way. And oh, He's bringing a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we are all going to receive it together. We're all going to receive it together. The Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints. All right? So therefore, here's the word of encouragement. So therefore, press on. So therefore, persevere. Come on. Keep going. Keep going. Don't fall back. Don't fall away. Don't lose heart. Press on. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, now the author to the Hebrews, the preacher to the Hebrew Christians, uses the illustration of the Roman Colosseum, the stadium. And there are these Hebrew Christians, and here we are, Christians in America in the 21st century. We're running a race, and we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. Those who have gone before us and lived and died in faith. They've finished their race, and it is as as it were. They're sitting in the stands, and they're cheering us on. And we're surrounded by them. And they are the the guarantee that if we press on through the race, we're going to be joined together with them. So keep running. Keep running. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. Don't drop out of the race. We're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. Let us also, therefore, now, what are we going to do? Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. It's hard to run a race if you got a bunch of extra heavy baggage. It's hard to run a race if you're all wrapped up with some kind of clothing that's going to trip you up and get caught between your knees, wrap around your ankles, or your shoelaces untied. No, we got to run. So get rid of the heavy baggage. Get rid of the... of the sin that clings so closely that it's going gonna, it's gonna to chafe you. It's going to trip you up. It's, it's, it's going to be, you know, something that just sort of binds up your legs. No, no, no. Get, 
get rid of the sin. Purify your life. Strip down and run. Keep running the race and don't let anything hinder you. That's the call for sanctification, purity of life, holiness, following the Lord. Let us run with endurance. Let us run with perseverance. Unflagging commitment. I remember, you know, having to get in shape and running. The first time I was really ever exposed to that, Lee Junior High School. You know, and you get this terrible pain in your side. You've never done it. You're just a, boy, you're just a little boy. And all of a sudden, you got somebody making you run, 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 right? You get this terrible pain in your side. Remember that? Oh, you just want to quit. And in those days, you know, they'd, they'd run you till you'd throw up. Well, that probably doesn't happen anymore. I don't know. But, okay. But you get the point. I can remember a coach yelling out, Anybody can quit. Anybody can quit. I'm thinking, really? Could I quit? I mean, is, is he saying I have permission to quit? No, that's not what he was saying. <laughs> he was saying, only those who press on will finish the race. Right? So, this is the imagery. And it requires discipline, it requires commitment. It requires endurance, and it requires faith. Faith in the promise of God. That in, that in the end, it's going to be worth it. Yeah, you don't want to run in vain. You want to go th- through all this for nothing. Right, that's there too. Faith in the promise of God. That all of this will not be in vain. So how do you know this? Well, here we go. Let us run with endurance, let us run with perseverance, the race that is set before us. First century, Hebrew Christians, the race that was set before them was to to run through the gauntlet of social ostracism, uh, family rejection, um, marginalization, shame, public humiliation, Well, what's a race set before us today in the 21st century? What do we have to keep running through and and not quit? Whatever kinds of opposition might come before us or uh, the, the, the challenges of facing adversity in our own lives without, without losing faith in the promises of God. Let us run the race that is set before us. And how do we do that? Looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. There He is. There He is. As it were, speaking figuratively, as an illustration, there He is on the other side of the tape. On the other side of the tape. Look at Him. He's looking back at you. Run to Him. Fix your eyes on Him. And what's He got in His hand? He's got a crown of righteousness which He's prepared to put on your head. 
when you, when you finish the race. Looking unto Jesus. Now, I want to, I'm going to pause here. We're going to come back to this verse. But I want to, I want to direct your attention to the fact that the Apostle Paul uses the athletic imagery of the race also in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, 1 Corinthians comes before 2 Corinthians. It comes after Romans. 1 Corinthians 9 and uh, verse 24 and following. And the, the point here is that the Apostle Paul is simply using, again, the analogy, the athletic imagery, the illustration from the world of Greco-Roman athletics. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. One of those little flowerly, you know, that's W-R-E-A-T-H, one of those little flower things you put on your head. A perishable one. You know, after a few days or so, it just shrivels up. But we, an imperishable, a crown of glory, which is imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. That is, I'm not just running around out there. Like a, like a child on the football field after the game, just running around and all. No, no, he's running. What he means is I'm running very deliberately. I'm running for a goal. I'm running intentionally. I'm running with self-discipline. I'm, I'm running to finish the race. I don't run aimlessly. I'm going somewhere. And I do not box as one beating the air. Think about that. He's not just pretending. He's just not, he's not sparring with the air. No, 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 no. He's in a real battle. He's in a real fight. He's in a real boxing match with his own sinful nature and with the, uh, with the assaults of Satan. Yeah, he's, he's, he's in a fight. He's not just fooling around. He says, I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be qualified. So body and soul, Paul is engaged in this athletic exercise and competition as he is pressing on toward the goal. That's a phrase that comes from his letter to the Philippians. I press on toward the goal. Well, so we have that in... 1 Corinthians chapter 9, but we also have it in his farewell letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, one of the most moving and beautiful portions of Scripture, I think. 2 Timothy comes after 1 Timothy. So uh, you look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul's farewell letter. Uh, in which he says, and he is in prison, and he knows that the day of his execution is drawing near. 
He says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, the, the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. There it is. I have fought the good fight against sin. Sin in his own life. Sin in the world. The spiritual warfare against Satan. I have fought the good fight. Didn't give in. He fought it to the end. I have finished the race. There it is. I have finished the race. You got to hear that in relation to Hebrews 12 saying, let us run the race set before us. Let us run with endurance. Let us run with perseverance all the way. Here's the Apostle Paul at the end of his life. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Faith in the promise of God. Faith in the Word of God. Faith in Jesus Christ who is able to do and will do all that he has promised to do. Including the receiving of the Apostle Paul into his glorious presence as soon as the executioner's axe hits his neck. And then, when Christ comes again, the resurrection of his body and its transformation to be like the glorious body of Jesus Christ. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And it is in this faith in Jesus Christ, faith in the Word of God, believing what God has said that Paul says, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The race is worth it. There's a crown. There's a crown of righteousness. And the Lord is, you see in this verse, there in verse 8, called the righteous judge. That means He's going he's to judge righteously. He's going to do the right thing. He is going to award the right judgment as a righteous judge. And because He is righteous, He will give what He has promised. The crown of righteousness. Because his righteousness has been imputed to the Apostle Paul and all who trust in him on the basis of the Apostle Paul and all who trust in him, including you, believing his word. So brothers, it's a matter of believing God and running the race. Believing God and running the race, looking to Jesus. Now we are back to Hebrews chapter 12. We are back to Hebrews chapter 12 in verse 
2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Some translations use the word author. Some translations use the word the pioneer. We have had a reference uh, to Jesus as the trailblazer. That would be one kind of uh, colloquial translation. But uh, if, if, you, if you go to Hebrews 6, I'd like for you to turn back. Keep your finger at 12, but turn back to Hebrews 6. Where you have at verse 19, 6, 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, that is, the most holy place. The Holy of Holies. That's where our hope is anchored. In that intimate, immediate communion with God Himself. How could it possibly be? Well, the next verse answers it. The inner place behind the curtain, verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. He is a forerunner. He is a trailblazer. He is the one who has gone ahead of us. He is, in that sense, the pioneer of our faith. And and so that is picked up again here in Hebrews 12 when it says that Jesus... Um, is the founder or the, the author and the, the, the founder and perfecter. I really like I really like the English word uh, maybe author and perfecter. It has to do with the beginning and the end. It has to do with it's kind of the idea of alpha and omega. From, from beginning to end, uh, Jesus is our salvation. From beginning to end, He is the one who has um, uh, shown us the way of faith. The, the author and perfecter of our faith. Perfecter, remember, has the sense of total completion without the possibility of anything ever being lost. We think of perfection as as something that is flawless and without mistake. But, But you remember the analogy from um, LSU football season. You know, when they were when they were 9-0. and And I asked you the question, do they, have, do they have a perfect season? And the answer is no. They don't have it yet. They have, up to that point, they have a, 
in terms of the win-loss category. They had a flawless season in terms of the win-loss category at that point when they were 9-0. But they didn't have a perfect season. They didn't have a perfected season. They didn't have a perfected season until they beat Clemson in the national championship and were 15-0 and the season was over and their 15-0 record would stand forevermore. Because there's not anything that could ever be subtracted from it. There, there could never be a loss to it. It was perfected. This is what Jesus has done for us. He has, he has perfected our faith, which is to say that He has perfected our faith by, by, by which, our faith in Him by which we are justified so that we can never fall away from it. We can't lose it. It is perfected in Him because He ran the whole race and He ran the whole race for us. He ran the whole race on our behalf. When we believe His Word, it is counted to His promise of the forgiveness of our sins, life everlasting, the hope of glory. It is counted unto us as righteousness. His perfect victory is given to us. That's the reason that the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, with respect to the resurrection of Christ, guaranteeing our resurrection from the dead and our translation from this mortal body into the immortal and when the perishable puts on the imperishable then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory oh death where is your victory thanks be to god who gives us the victory through our lord jesus christ He's won the race, which guarantees that as long as we are looking to Him, that is, actively placing our faith in Him and, as it were, running to Him through this world with our eyes focused on Him and the reward which He has for us on the other side of the tape, we will finish the race. And we will receive the crown of righteousness. Now, let's drill into this a little bit more because this is significant. I hope it helps you. I hope it encourages you. I hope it lifts your hearts to heaven. I hope it, it, it buoys your spirits in the midst of all of this uh, crazy uncertainty with which we are living right now. He is the author. He is the pioneer and perfecter. I really like that turn of phrase. He's the pioneer of our faith. He, he's, he's the one out in front of us. And he's the one who finished it, perfected it. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Now we got to get this. Jesus ran the race through a life, His life in this world, a life of constant battle against those who opposed Him. 
a life of continual rejection by those who opposed him. A life which, at least, probably before, but I mean, really, in earnest, from the time of his baptism by John in the Jordan, it was one fight after another, beginning with the confrontation with Satan in the 40 days in the wilderness. And then from there on out, it was just one thing after another every day. All leading up to the cross. Public humiliation, public scorn, public rejection, preceded by betrayal by one of his companions for three years, and denial by his leading disciple, and the agony of Gethsemane, the mockery of a kangaroo court for his trial, scourging, mocking, death on a cross from which he cried the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22.1 How could he have done that? And I want to remind you that he did it as a man in his human nature. He wasn't, he wasn't immune. Though his human nature was inseparably united with his divine nature, his human nature was not immune to all the pains that you and I would feel if we had to go through that. No, no. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You see? He was looking beyond the tape. You get that? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And what that means, brothers and sisters, what it means is Jesus himself. Jesus himself, the Son of God incarnate in human flesh and blood, in his human nature, lived by faith. Lived by faith in the promises of God his Father. You get that? Now Jesus is more than our example. He's our Savior. And his, his work of salvation is a work of sovereign power. But at the same time, Jesus is our example. This is the whole point of Hebrews 12. 
Look to Jesus. He did it. He endured the cross. How did he endure the cross? For the joy set before him. He had his eyes on the joy set before him. What was the joy set before him? The promise of God his Father. An invisible promise of his Father. Which meant Jesus, in his human nature, was called to believe God. There it is. Jesus was called to believe God in order to live out His life and do all that was necessary in order to be our Savior. So in that sense, He is our example. He's the example of what it is to live by faith and die in faith. But more than the example, of course, He is the Savior of all those who have faith in Him. But I want to show you this. John 12. Keep your, keep your finger at Hebrews 12. Go back to John 12. John 12 is, is John's, the Gospel of John's account of Palm Sunday. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on uh, the first day of what we now call Holy Week. When you, so when you get to John 12, verse 27, this is after Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. John 12, 27, and John, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. Whom what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He's looking at the cross. That's, that's what he's contemplating. Even on Palm Sunday, he is contemplating the horror and dread of the cross. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. There it is. And so he prays, Father, glorify your name. May what I am about to go through bring glory to your name. Let it not be in vain. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. God's promise, the Father's promise to the Son that His death on the cross would not be in vain and would not lead to shame, but would be a triumph, and a triumph by which God would be glorified. And the mission would be accomplished. And so then you go to John chapter 17, the great high priestly prayer of Jesus. This is on the night of the Last Supper, the night on which Jesus instituted 
the Lord's Supper, the night in which he was betrayed. But before his betrayal, before his arrest, before his agony in Gethsemane, Jesus offered up this great high priestly prayer in which we hear Jesus pray for himself, then for his disciples, and then for you and me, for all those who would come to believe in him through the word of the disciples. But as he is praying for himself as the great high priest, he says this, 17, 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now in that prayer, Jesus is praying for that which His Father had already promised to do. He's simply standing on the promise, praying for that promise to be fulfilled, and committing Himself to do what He is called to do for the fulfillment of that promise. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And then He goes on to say, verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He's speaking in the past tense as though it has already occurred because it is a fate accompli. He is going to the cross. He will glorify the Father in His death. Right? And this is the prayer. And now, Father, glorify me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. That was Jesus' prayer on the way to the cross. Glorify me now in the horror of death on the cross. Through it, may I be glorified with You with the glory I had with You before the world existed. He was looking beyond the cross. He was looking to that glory to which He would be restored. He was believing the promise of His Father. Believing the promise of His Father, He willingly took up the cross in obedience to the Father. In obedience to the Father. Trusting the Father's promise that there was glory. Glory on the other side of the suffering and the shame. Glory on the other side of the wrath that was about to be poured out on Him. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. That's how He did it. He had to look beyond the cross, beyond the suffering, beyond the shame, beyond the wrath, 
beyond the hell to glory, the joy that was set before him. And that, that's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. And not lose sight of the glory that shall be revealed to us. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians. Though so keep your hand at Hebrews 12 and go back to 2 Corinthians 4. Now listen to this. Um, well, in, in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul enumerates the, the ways in which he, he has suffered for the sake of Christ. And in, in 2 Corinthians 4, if you begin at verse 7, it says we have this treasure in jars of clay. I'm at 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. Verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Well, the point is, that he's, he's enduring all kinds of suffering for the sake of, of Christ. But then he goes on and says this, that, Verse 16, 2 Corinthians 4, 16. We do not lose heart. Our outer self, our outer nature is wasting away. And it's wasting away under the assaults of persecution and opposition and just being beat up and beat down for Jesus' sake. Our outer nature is wasting away, but our inner self, our inner man, the new man in Christ, our inner man, our, the everlasting man within us is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction. That's what he calls it. This light momentary affliction of suffering in this fallen world for Jesus' sake is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Beyond all comparison. It's nothing compared to the glory which will be ours through the grace and power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? The crown of righteousness. And, and Romans chapter 8. You've got to get this. Romans 8. Keep your finger at Hebrews 12. Romans 8, does he say, at verse 7, 16, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's knowing what you know. Knowing that you know that you know that you know, knowing what you know that you know what you know, that Christ has saved you and given you His Spirit. You've been born again as a child of God. 
The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We are loved by God in Jesus Christ. I know the love of God for me in Jesus Christ. I know that when I was yet a sinner, yet Christ died for me. I know that when I was ungodly, Christ died for me. I know I have no hope apart from Him. I know this, and I know Christ is my Savior. I know it. Because God said it and I believe it. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him. In order that we may also be glorified with Him. It's the same logic. Looking unto Jesus who... For the joy set before Him endured the cross. Same with us. We're children of God. How do we know it? Because we're suffering for Jesus in this world in the assurance that we're going to share His glory with Him in eternity. And therefore, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory that is to be revealed in us. We're going to share the glory of Christ. We're going to share the glory of Christ as His brothers and sisters, adopted children, the adopted children of the Father. And here it is. We will know without any uncertainty then what we are called to believe now. And that is this. That the everlasting love of the Father, the eternal love of the eternal Father, which has been eternally poured out on the Father's eternally beloved Son, the eternal love of the eternal Father with which He has eternally loved His eternal Son is the same love and the same degree of love with which He loves you and me. That's unbelievable, but God has said it. Do you believe it? You want me to say it again? (laughs) The eternal love with which the eternal Father has eternally loved His eternal Son is the same love which He pours out. The same love with which He loves you and me in Christ. Not because we deserve it. Not because we're good enough for it. But because He has included us by His grace. He has chosen us in Christ. In His love, He has chosen us in Christ from before the foundation of the world. And when He beholds His eternal Son in His eternal love, He beholds us in Him. So I could say it a little simply. More simply, Jesus loves you. God the Father loves you as much as He loves Jesus, His own Son. You can't believe that, can you? God the Father loves you in the same way, with the same degree of love, as much as He loves His only begotten Son.
Do you believe him? Do you believe him? Right. And there's a glory and there's a joy for you on the other side of the tape. So run. Run with perseverance. Run with discipline. Get rid of everything that's going to trip you up and slow you down. Run with endurance. The race that is set before you. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. It's a great it's a great phrase, despising the shame. What does it mean? Well, you know, the, the shame, the shame of rejection, the shame of mockery, the shame of, of being cast out or of being socially ostracized or being marginalized or whatever it is in, in today's world. You know, Christians are put to shame by, by the cultural elite of the United States today. You know that. And I'm not trying to encourage a pity party. Uh-uh. Don't, we're not doing the pity party thing, and we're not doing the whining thing. No, no. It's, that's, that's the way it is. Jesus told us it would be that way. Um, you know, he told us that a long time ago. So, I mean, that's just kind of, that's just part of the deal. When you sign up to follow him, you're signing up for the shame, the mocking, the rejection of the world. Can't have it both ways. And, and, and that's how the world tries to bully us. Bully us into silence. Bully us into compliance. Shame us into, into a corner. No, 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 no. despising the shame. What's that mean? It means thinking nothing of it. Thinking nothing of it. Considering it to be nothing in comparison to the joy that is set before us. For the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. It was as though it were nothing. That's what, exactly what Paul says. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's not even worth thinking about the sufferings we're enduring for Jesus' sake. It's just, they amount to nothing compared to the glory that awaits us. I am sure that the, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's it. Not worth comparing. Not worth comparing. You think nothing of it. You despise the shame. That's what it means. That's what Jesus did. That's what we're called to do. Looking unto Jesus, He's the author and the finisher. He's the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. He's run the race for us. He's won the victory for us. He's going to give the victory to us. How did he do it? For the joy set before him, trusting in his Father's word. He endured the cross, despising the shame. And what was the end result of that? 
Well, he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's victory, that's glory, and that's joy. And he's seated at the right hand of God for you. Brothers, we want to be men as we approach the last decades of our lives. We might be in the last hours of our lives for all we know. Who can say, time of my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Day of glory, day of joy. Let's live that way. Let's keep running the race. For Jesus' sake, let us pray. Father, how we thank you for your loving kindness, your mercy, your grace, your glory, and we pray that your spirit would dwell in our hearts and give us that grace of perseverance and endurance. We pray, Lord, that your power would be made known, your perfect power would be made known in our weakness. And that would, we would have the assurance that though our outer nature, our outer man is wasting away, the inner man is being renewed day by day. How we rejoice, O oh Lord, in the promise of everlasting life through Jesus Christ. Help us now by the power of your Spirit, the indwelling Spirit of the Lord Jesus risen from the dead. Help us by that same Spirit to live our lives now on earth as those who have been raised unto newness of life, to live on the earth as the citizens of heaven, to the glory of your name, through Jesus Christ, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, our great Savior, and our great High Priest, and our only mediator, seated at your right hand. Amen.